You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning and peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. I do want to make a brief announcement um, before we get started and that is that Uh, This week, we have our monthly prayer gathering on Wednesday uh, here at 7.30 p.m., and so uh, our parishes won't be gathering uh, this week because we we treat the prayer gathering, the corporate prayer gathering, as our parish gathering for the week, and so please uh, do join us. Um, You don't have to be part of a neighborhood parish or a member to to join us for for our prayer gathering, and so we'd love to have you at 7.30 on Wednesday. With that being said, we are continuing our journey through the gospel according to Luke, and we're looking at passages that are unique to Luke's gospel. Um, And and for those of you who are pretty familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking, well, there's a very similar account in in all of the other gospels to the one that we read today. And and that's true in Matthew, Mark, and John. uh, They all record an event in which a, a woman is at a dinner Um, at a man named Simon's house, um, and she anoints Jesus, and it's uh, a really big deal. Um, But Simon was a really common name, uh, and all the details of those accounts lead us to believe that that there were at least two separate occasions in which Jesus was anointed by a woman. Um, And so we do not need to assume that, that this woman in Luke is Mary Magdalene or Mary of Bethany, um, as is recorded in the other Gospels, um, or that Simon the leper and Simon the Pharisee are the same person. Uh, instead, what we can marvel at is that on two occasions, a woman shows up with expensive ointment to anoint Jesus at a dinner party that causes quite the stir. So we might need to consider who this Jesus is. If, if that's the kind of guy he is, um, he's probably worth investigating a little bit more. Um, Today, we're we're seeing Jesus at a a dinner party at a Pharisee's home, and he's intimately worshipped and doted upon by a woman that the text describes as a sinner and a woman of the city. Um, This passage leads to an interesting discussion um, about the the insight uh, and, and nature of faith and love, the forgiveness of God, the disposition uh, that Jesus has towards sinful people, and, and all of that is, is particularly relevant to us in this season of Lent. So let's pray, and then let's ask, uh, let's ask God to reveal himself to us in his word. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning, and we're needy uh, for your mercy. Um, I pray that regardless of the circumstances that any of us came in with this morning, whether we are overwhelmed and exhausted Um, whether we are mourning or anxious or overjoyed and and excited, whether we come before you full of shame and and guilt and fear or or with pride, uh, whatever that is, I pray that you would use your word to convict us and comfort us and to compel us by your love to trust in you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, I want to say a couple things about our, our time in this passage this morning. Uh, First, as I already mentioned, this is another passage in Luke where Jesus is dealing with with Pharisees. And and it seems that every week for the last few weeks, we've had these accounts where Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. And for the sake of our time, I'm not going to get into who the Pharisees are or 
or, or the extent of that. We could just briefly say that they were members of the religious elite of the day who were deeply committed to the, the scriptures. Uh, they believed in the, the future coming of the Messiah, the resurrection of the dead. Um, they were um, very influential members in, in Jewish thought and in, in the temple. Um, and so, so they were a serious group of Jews. The second thing I'll say is that this text is long and there is a lot to be said about it. Um, and we can't say everything that there is to be said about it. Um, instead, we're, we're going to focus on, on really what I believe is the most important aspects of the text for us in this season of Lent in the church calendar. Um, and so, so to set that up, last week we reckoned with the reality of hell in um, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, we reckon with our need to trust wholly in Christ for all of our righteousness and our forgiveness and, and that Jesus needs to be our only means for salvation, that he's the only name by which we can be saved. And this week, we're expanding on that idea as we look at Jesus' response to this sinful woman and, and to the objections of, of Simon the Pharisee. And so let's read the first four verses together, verses 36 through 40, if you want to follow along. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house and, and, and reclined in table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. I want you to take note of the characters who are interacting with Jesus here. We have a, a Pharisee and a sinful woman of the city. Uh, we, we learned the Pharisee's name. His name is Simon. We never learn the woman's name. Um, she is a woman of the city described as a sinner. Um, it's not specified what her great sin was, but the word in the Greek that describes her as a sinner is a word that would be used to describe someone who's especially sinful, especially wicked. Like she walks in a room and people know about her past. They, they know who she is. They know she's a sinner. Um, over the years, many have speculated that, that she's a, a prostitute or an adulterer and and considering the time and the setting, those are really likely um, possibilities, but we don't know. We're, we're not given the, the specifics of her sin, and I think that's intentional because it's not important. What is important is that she was a very sinful person. She, she's a woman with the kind of history that would have made the Pharisees uncomfortable having her at the house for dinner, right? Like in a list of which of these people don't, doesn't belong at the dinner party, she's the obvious answer. The Pharisee, Simon, on the other hand, he was not especially sinful. He's not described as a sinner. Surely he had his faults like anybody um, but his lifestyle and his history would probably not make any of us blush 
to hear it. Um, and, and so I mentioned these two characters because there's a juxtaposition that's important and for our application this morning as we re- consider how this passage might be calling us. Some of you are already realizing that you're a lot more like Simon in this story than the woman at Jesus' feet. Like if you look at your history, some of you on the other hand, you know you're a lot more like the sinful woman. You have things that, that you've done, uh, habits that, that you've dealt with, maybe vices that, that you've sought to rid yourself of that, that maybe you didn't even want your Christian friends to know about, right? Some of you, on the other hand, you, you grew up in, in the church, never particularly rebelled. Surely you've made some mistakes, but overall your life is one of up and to the right. And I want you to take note now of the behavior of the woman at the party, See, she's not at the table with the guests. She wasn't invited to the feast. Instead, she hears that Jesus is there. She arrives with her alabaster flask of ointment, and she's on the floor before Jesus. She's weeping at his feet. We don't know exactly why she's weeping. Maybe she's weeping because she's overwhelmed by by the guilt of her sin and and the sorrow over her sin. Maybe she's just weeping with with joy and and feeling overwhelmed because she's in the presence of of Jesus, this man who she's, she's put a lot of stake in. Maybe it's a combination of the two, but either way, she's, she's wetting his feet with her tears, she's wiping his feet with her hair, and she's, she's washing his feet this way, and, and she's brought this expensive ointment, and she's rubbing his feet, and she's kissing his feet repeatedly. She's treating him like a slave would a master, or like a subject would a king. And, and honestly, like if you think about this, um, it, it's easy to to look at this with, with our, our spiritual Christian eyes. But like if we look at it just as we're reading a story, this would make the party uncomfortable, right? Uh, the, this is probably not what Simon had in mind when he invited Jesus to, to feast at his home. He probably ha- had some Pharisee friends there. They were probably expecting to have some intellectual conversation about the, the Old Testament law, maybe how to interpret certain passages. Maybe they had questions prepared, and they were going to try to trick Jesus, trip him up in his words, find something where they could prove him wrong. But instead, here's this woman just doting on him, weeping, and wiping, and cleaning, and, and massaging. And this, this would have been odd or socially uncomfortable if this woman was a regular participant in, at the services at their local synagogue. This would have been odd if, if this was maybe Simon's sister or, or his wife or, or a, a close friend that, that they knew well. But given who she is, this seems scandalous. It's inappropriate. So Simon thinks so, at least. He, he says to himself, likely, in the recesses of his mind, he says, who is this guy who's letting this woman serve him so intimately? He calls himself a prophet. He presents himself as a prophet. A prophet, a man of God, a man committed to the word of God and to the kingdom of God would never associate with a sinner like this and would never let a sinner touch him this way. He would never be defiled by her uncleanliness associated with her guilt. No, a real prophet would send her away. And this is consistent with the attitude of, 
of the religious elite at the time. And if some of us who have been involved in the church our whole life, like we kind of understand where Simon's coming from. Right? Like we've felt that way before, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Simon's thinking to himself that Jesus, he's out of line. And while Simon's thinking this, Jesus is doing something else, and that's perceiving Simon's thoughts. Like, oh, the benefits of being God in the flesh at a party, right? Like, how many times have I wished that I knew what the people across the table from me were were thinking? And, And let's hear how he responds. Imagine the surprise when Jesus answers him. I love that Luke says, and Jesus answering said to him. It's, there's, just, there's a subtle beauty to that. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And this parable uh, among the parables of Jesus is pretty easy to understand, right? Our sinfulness before God is like debt. This is not a new illustration that Jesus is presenting. This is consistent with the scriptures, and, and, and it's debt that we can't repay, and yet without it being repaid, we have no hope of having real harmony, real relationship, real friendship with God because we're in debt to him. And so we need our debt to be forgiven. We need our account to be justified. And Jesus is saying that God is willing to do this work of debt forgiveness, of justifying the account. The money lender, he canceled the debt of both debtors in this story. And so it's not about how much you're indebted to God, how much you've sinned. God will forgive you whether you've sinned some or a lot, whether you've sinned a lot or a whole lot, whether you've sinned a whole lot or way more than you would care to admit. Like, like God will forgive you. Now, some people, they come to God knowing that their debt is great, right? Like they, they, come, they, they come to God and they know they're overwhelmed by this feeling that they failed, they've missed the mark, they've made a ruin of their lives, they've, they've ruined relationship. They, like everything they touch is like if their world is a garden, they've got the black thumb, right? Like everything is dying. And, and so they come before God with fear, with reverence, with humility. It's, it's a humbling thing. They look at themselves and their past and their weaknesses and they wonder how could God have anything to do with me. Some of you are like that, thinking, like, how could it be that God would, would tolerate me, let alone forgive me, and, and let alone love me? And so for this person, when they realize the radical grace of God that, that he is willing to forgive, it yields an overwhelming love toward God. Jesus is telling us that our love for him is logically proportional to the degree to which we perceive our forgiveness to be undeserved, right? right? So to whatever degree you realize that, that God's forgiveness toward you is totally undeserved, it's to that degree that you will love Christ. And the woman in the story is well aware that, that she has nothing to offer God. She, she's well aware she doesn't deserve the kingdom. She understood it was a gift. So let's keep reading. Verses 44 through 47. 
Then turning toward the woman, Jesus says to Simon. I love that Luke's giving us this description of physically what Jesus is doing. He's looking at the woman. He's speaking to Simon, and he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So Simon, he has Jesus over to his house for dinner, and Jesus is pointing out, you've treated me like your peer, not like the Messiah. Not like a prophet, certainly not like the son of God. Maybe Simon thought he had a few things he could learn from Jesus. Maybe he thought it would be interesting to have Jesus over. Maybe he was just keeping his enemies close. We don't really know, but, but he's not going out of his way to make sure Jesus was respected, loved, and honored. He didn't provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. Now, socially, it wouldn't have been expected of Simon to provide water to any of his guests for the, them to wash their feet, but it would have been a common response if somebody who has authority, who's higher up in, in the religious or social food chain to enter your house to, to serve them by, by bringing water for them to wash their feet. If you read Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by three men who he perceives to be God in the flesh. And when they come, the first thing Abraham does is he commands his servants to go bring fresh water that they might wash their feet. So this was a practice for, for being visited by an honored guest. Simon didn't kiss Jesus. Kisses were for kings. They're not for common guests. Kisses were for authority figures, respected members, elders, not for common guests. He didn't anoint Jesus. And, and, and Jesus makes this distinction. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. And, and so... There's a twofold thing here. First is just like, she's anointed me, you didn't. But then he distinguishes two types of anointing. Oil is cheap. It's common. He would have had it in abundance. And anointing somebody's head with oil in the time was a, a simple sign of respect, love, and hospitality. It's simply a blessing of saying, I I'm glad you're here. May God bless you. Simon didn't do that for Jesus. This woman, on the other hand, she's brought this expensive ointment. And, and instead of standing eye to eye anointing his head, she's bowed low anointing his feet. The, the woman, she's using her own tears because no water's been brought. She's using her tears to wash his feet. She's using her hair to, to wash his feet. No towel's been brought. She, she didn't cease to heap upon his feet the praise of kisses. It, why? Why was she doing this? She knew that Jesus was her only hope. That's why. She had no illusions that she was going to be okay before the God of the universe in judgment without her account being justified through the miraculous forgiveness of her sins. She came into the presence of Jesus, likely expecting to be sent away, and when she wasn't, she heaped praises upon him. She knew that she had nothing to offer God to repay him. She knew that she had nothing to offer Jesus that might make him more blessed. 
As far as she was concerned, she was alive simply because Jesus was her means to being alive, that God, it was the breath in her lungs that came from God, and so she's using it to pour out praise, like we say. She knew she would have been crushed otherwise, and so she gives all of her affection to Christ. Simon, on the other hand, he's not convinced of his need for Jesus. He he likely wasn't at all convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of God, come to establish and and redeem Israel. And and even if he was, Simon probably thought he was doing all right in the eyes of God. I mean, he was a circumcised member of the household of God. He observed the feast. He participated in temple worship. He was a respected member of society. He didn't have a long record of sin. Why would he not get to participate in the kingdom? Why would he need to grow? at the feet of Jesus. I'm sure Simon figured if if Jesus does prove himself to be the Messiah, I'll I'll believe. I'll believe it. He probably thought that, but, but he probably didn't think that he would need Jesus to be his Savior as well. The last three verses say, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now these last three verses really open up the text in in a beautiful and complex way. And, And I love it. Like Jesus, he's been going on about this woman's love for him being due to the amount of forgiveness she's been given. And then after that, he proclaims her as forgiven. That's a huge thing for us to observe from this text. It's kind of a confusing thing at first glance. The second thing that that I notice is Simon is doubting the legitimacy that Christ is the chosen one of God. And here, Jesus boldly forgives the sins of this woman in the presence of all these people, which only God has the authority to forgive sins. So he's not just saying, I'm a prophet. He's not just saying, I'm the Messiah. He's saying, I'm even more than that. I am Yahweh, and I'm forgiving this woman. This is a huge thing. This is what got Jesus killed, things like that. And the third thing, that this text does is it, it shows us that it's not this, the ointment that was put on Jesus' feet. It's not the tears coming out of this woman's eyes. It's not her groveling at the feet of Jesus, which have earned her forgiveness. She's forgiven simply through faith. Your faith has saved you, Jesus says. Now, if you've been reading this closely, you probably have a lot of questions. I did. Questions like, How is it that the woman was loving as though she was forgiven before the proclamation of forgiveness, right? Jesus is, he's giving this parable about he's for. He who is forgiven much will love much. He who is forgiven little will love little. She's like, she loves me because she's been forgiven so much. And then she's forgiven. That's a big question. How is it that she's loving as though forgiven before she knows that she's forgiven? Second, What is the faith that the woman had? Because I want some of it. Right? Like, what is this faith that she had? Because I I want some of it. I want you to have some of it. And the third thing is, is, okay, in light of the answers to those questions, what do we do? What do we take from this text? What is God calling us to? And so I think the first two questions go hand in hand. To understand why the woman was proclaimed forgiven after she was clearly responding in this love that was proportional to her forgiveness, 
we need to know about the faith that Jesus is talking about. We use the word faith a lot, right? Especially here in the church, we use the word faith a lot. Uh, You're saved by faith. You need to have faith, pray with faith. Like, let's pursue the faith. But it becomes kind of this nebulous word that like we use it, but we don't always really know what it means. We don't always have a working definition for it. It's just like we kind of self-define it in our, in our own heads or through the context of our language. But luckily, we don't have to do that. The scriptures tell us what faith is. The author of Hebrews, I think, does it best. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. The passage gives us two ways of discussing faith that that are helpful. First, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So in the context of Hebrews 11, which is probably my favorite chapter in the New Testament, the author is making this point about how all the saints of the old covenant, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Hannah, like, like all of these people who tr- trusted in God, that they were saved by faith, right? We often like hear Christians talking about like, oh, well, they used to have to be saved through obedience to the law, but no, like they were saved through faith in the promises of God, that God made promises, promises like he would forgive their sins. He would establish a kingdom that would never end. He would put... At the head of that kingdom, a king who will reign forever. He will protect them from their enemies. He will save them from death. He will crush the serpent's head. Like all of these promises, they believed them even though they didn't see them come to fulfillment. They believed him. They they were assured of things hoped for. They had assurance in things hoped for. Conviction in things they had not yet seen. This is the essence of faith. And so in Luke 7, the woman who has faith, what what we have learned is that she believed that God would forgive her and that in some way Jesus was the representative of God. She probably didn't really know the fullness of who Jesus was, that he was the son of God, that he was divine in nature, that he was the Messiah. She just could readily perceive that that this man is associated with the God of heaven. I want to get near him because I believe the promises of God, promises like forgiveness. She wasn't coming to Jesus hoping that a foot rub would earn her forgiveness or or that the the authenticity of her worship through tears would, would make God smile upon her and forgive her. No, she came to him because she believed that God had made promises and that God was trustworthy and that he would keep his promises. And so she worshiped God as though she was forgiven, even though she had not yet heard the words, you are forgiven. And that's the essence of saving faith, right? Like, so if you're struggling with how, what does it mean to come to Christ? It is to look upon Christ, find him to be trustworthy, find him to be beautiful, recognize that you desperately need him and believe that he's your only hope even before you know for sure you're forgiven, even though you, before you feel in your emotions that you're forgiven, even before you see the beauty of heaven, which we're all awaiting. Faith is the assurance in things hoped for, the conviction in things not seen. So you might not see these realities, 
But faith allows you to be convicted of those truths. It's a gift of God that we might have assurance and things hoped for. Conviction and things not seen. So in faith, the woman made herself even more undignified than she already was. Why? Because God's love for her was so great that how could she not love in return? So awesome that how could she not bow before him? See, she believed God for a clean slate even before she knew her slate was clean because he's trustworthy, because he keeps his promises. If he said it, he'll do it. So, so what do we take from this text? Well, well, the most obvious thing from the parable is that, that we love God proportionally to the amount that we've been forgiven, which raises, I think, a question for us, which is, does that mean that it is only those who have this like sort of storybook testimony of being converted from the mires of addiction and depression and despair and, and orphanhood and, and paganism and that God calls them radically and transforms their life in this wonderfully awesome, like violent way. Is it only those people who get to love God fully? Like what about those of us who... We're, we're raised in the church, baptized in the church, pretty much believe since we can remember, like we never had a, a, a big story of rebellion. Maybe you've never really wandered away from the faith. Like sure, you've made your mistakes, but like your, your slate is relatively the, up and to the right. Does that mean that you're gonna be deprived of the ability of loving God fully? No. That is not the takeaway. That's not what Jesus wants us to draw out from the text. The takeaway is that all of us, regardless of how long the list of our sins are, need to realize that even if the amount of our sin isn't greater than our brother or sister, we are totally and completely hopeless on our own merit. Right? Last week we discussed the, the dangers of self-righteousness and the need for us to understand our own depravity. That, that like born out of the, the genealogy of Adam that we're all born, that, that every bit of us is clouded and tainted with sin. And so that, that even it's not about fully our actions, it's just that, that apart from God, like we, we need his grace. See, in the eyes of God and even, and in relationship to his holiness, Regardless of how relatively sinless you've lived, you have no business in the courts of God. You have no business in the heavenly places in comparison to his righteousness, his, his holiness. Like your, your best efforts are filthy rags compared to the majesty and purity of God. Your record of sin might be half the length of mine, and I'm here to tell you it probably is, but it is infinitely longer than the record of Christ's. Regardless of how short your record of sin is, it's infinitely longer than Christ's record of sin, which was zero, and he's the only human being who has ever been utterly deserving of entrance into the heavenly places. And so your only hope for relationship with God, for unity with God, for entrance into his courts forever is that you're united to him through faith, that his death is enough for you, that his resurrection is enough for you. He is your only hope. 
His merit is your only chance. So in this season of Lent, a season where we're called to reflect upon the nature of our sin and our mortality and our neediness for God, I, I invite you to realize your total poverty and inability to bring anything to him that might improve him or justify your debt. Look to Christ in faith. In faith. Meaning you come to him not with this self-destructive shame that, that you're wallowing in. And that you think maybe if I'm contrite enough, if I'm regretful enough, if I'm ashamed enough, God will pity me. That's not going to save you. And don't come to him with, with this effort of, I'm, I'm just going to really authentically pour myself into to worship and obedience, and I'm going to do all the right things, and I'm going to use all my time and all my money to serve him, and then maybe he'll forgive me then. No, like tears of worship and gratitude bringing lavish gifts of generosity to God and his church, serving him at the cost of your dignity and your comfort. These are all beautiful expressions of the love that will grow in your heart as you understand the depths to which you've been forgiven, but they are not the means to forgiveness. Let's not make our salvation dependent upon the all-elusive definitions of authenticity. See, we live in a culture that is obsessed with authenticity, which is a nebulous and elusive thing to, to run after. And it's creeped into the theology of church where, where now the, the most faithful Christians are the ones who, who, who cry the most in prayer. They're the ones who raise their hands the highest. They're the ones who give the most. They're the ones who give most of their time to, to service or, or to evangelists. And the, the, those are the ones that God will be the most pleased with. And there is a reality that God is pleased when we're obedient. He's pleased when we delight in him. He's pleased when we're generous. Those are responses to the fact that we've been infinitely forgiven of an infinite debt. They're, they're not the means. It's a great danger to make our response to the gift of God into some version of having earned that gift. Because when we add qualifiers to what it means to be saved or forgiven, we begin to lose the beauty of the grace of God. What, what happens is we commit heresy when we do that. And what will happen practically is that our love toward God will slowly turn back toward ourselves because it's not God who's forgiven me, it's my authentic worship. It's not God who's forgiven me, it's my self-flagellation and my frustration with myself when I'm ashamed of my sin. See, the woman didn't pat herself on the back for serving Christ so humbly. Nor was she too ashamed to show up before him. She served him humbly because she loved him deeply. And she loved him deeply because he had made to her precious promises that she believed he would keep. Knowing that, that her service would never be enough, knowing that her service would never be the means through which she's forgiven, but that it's just a response of the fact that God is good and loving toward her. I, I love the beauty of this passage that she comes a sinful woman before the holy God of the universe and, and she expects to be sent away. Simon expected her to be sent away. But Jesus let her sit at his feet. 
he showed her mercy and grace by allowing her to weep at his feet and wash them. Put ointment on his feet. All of these cosmetic things, they didn't add to the value of Jesus. They didn't make him more lovely. It was a gift of Christ to invite her to serve, to be in the presence of one who would not send her away. And so regardless of how long your record of debt is this morning, you can come to Christ and he will not send you away. He will not send you away. And for those of you who have been considering what it would mean to, to follow Christ obediently in the work of sharing the good news, and, but you have friends or, or neighbors or coworkers or family members who you think they're, they're just too far gone, Christ will not send them away if they come down. And so you can, in undignified, loving response to the forgiveness of God, put yourself at the feet of Christ and proclaim, come and join me. One of the beauties of the kingdom is that Christ does not leave us sitting at his feet forever. Eventually, he invites us up to feast. He invites us to rise from his feet, from his feet to sit with him at the heavenly feast. And we celebrate that, we look toward that, and we celebrate the reason that that's possible through the death and resurrection of Christ every week. And so let's pray and let's come feast with Christ in preparation for the eternal feast.